Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso here with the man himself, Alex Dykes. Hey everybody, and I guess uh, we'll just go ahead and add this to the screen here. If you're not watching this on YouTube, go ahead and uh, click on over there because behold, this is the Grand Highlander. A grander Highlander, Alex. Yes. Is it bigger? It is the grandest of the Highlanders, and uh, Toyota is really cagey on details, which I think is a pity because it is bigger than a regular Highlander, but we don't know exactly how much bigger. You can see the overhangs are definitely longer. Size-wise, this appears to be somewhere between, uh, obviously, a Sequoia and a Telluride. It's probably somewhere in that, that range there. They're keeping some of the details for a little bit later. Uh, if you are watching this, then pay attention to the description uh, of the video or actually that on the podcast as well, because if there are any additional details after we film this, then we will fill you out there. But basically, it looks kind of like a RAV4, don't you think? Steroidal, but yes. Yeah, like a, like a big RAV4. <laughs> what, is, what is the target here? Like, what vehicle pops to the mind of a Toyota product planner when he thinks about the natural you know, rival for a vehicle like this in the U.S. market? What are his targets? What are his benchmarks? To be honest, this really does seem to be targeted at Telluride and Palisade almost directly. Uh, I think everybody in the industry, including Hyundai and Kia, were shocked by the relative success of Telluride and Palisade because they are so large on the inside. And uh, a lot of customers want something that's just as efficient as a crossover, but has more minivan-like room inside, but doesn't look like a minivan. So I think this is filling that, that dual need there. The person that maybe is looking at a Sienna thinks that it's not rugged enough for them, doesn't have the kind of all-wheel drive system they want, um, maybe wants a bit more room, doesn't want to get all the way into a Sequoia. So less expensive than Sequoia, smaller on the outside than Sequoia. Uh, seven or eight passenger seating on the inside and a usable third row. Now, to me, the only way this makes sense is if the length is added after the front seats, but before the rear axle. Is there mm -hmm. any indication that this is going to be a longer wheelbase vehicle? Yes, it definitely appears to be a longer wheelbase version of the uh, the Highlander. When you look at like this picture here, the side of the Grand Highlander, it's definitely longer. It's definitely boxier as well. And it looks a little bit less like a Subaru. It looks more like a Toyota vehicle, I would say, generally speaking, which is definitely a good thing. Um, you know, I think it's an attractive look. Exactly how it's going to behave in the market space, we don't know yet. The, obviously, there are no production targets. And it is going to be four-cylinder only. So... Regular 2.4 liter turbo out of the regular Highlander, two and a half liter uh, non-turbocharged hybrid out of the regular Highlander, and the 2.4 liter turbocharged hybrid out of the Crown, producing a maximum of uh, around uh, 260 some odd, uh, sorry, 360 uh, some odd horsepower is the uh, the uh, quote there from Toyota. So it's going to be pretty peppy. Um, exactly how peppy? Be sure and stay tuned because I will be driving this in uh, mid-May. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up soon. And uh, we'll get you all the details you need to know about whether you should cancel your order on that Telluride you can't find. Or the Chevy Traverse that you could get at a great price. 
Yeah, the Traverse is definitely big, but the third row of the Traverse definitely is, is smaller than this one. This one is much boxier and, and roomier in the third row. So I think that they're trying to give third row room that is really lacking in the Sequoia. And I think that's going to be the surprising part once we finally see specifications, is I would not be surprised if this third row is actually bigger and roomier than the third row that we find in the Sequoia. Uh, if you aren't already a subscriber of the YouTube channel, be sure and check that out because I will be crawling all over one after we film this video, but before the embargo lifts. So you can find even more up-to-date breaking news on that there. And if you like power, remember this generation of the Highlander, the standard Highlander, went to a four-cylinder hybrid system that made combined about 243 horsepower. The Crown also uses a four-cylinder, but it makes between 340 and 360 horsepower, which is a big step up to what we would have called almost V8 power a generation mm -hmm. ago. So yeah. if you have maybe not a need for speed, but a need for more speed, the Grand Highlander should step up in that regard. Yeah, and I'm going to be intrigued to see how it drives because, you know, the, in the Crown, the regular hybrid system is far better sorted than the hybrid max drivetrain. Um, and if I were buying a Crown, that's what I would select in the Crown is the lower horsepower regular hybrid. It's considerably better fuel economy. It doesn't feel disconnected like the six speed system can. I am really shocked that Toyota went in that design direction with the hybrid max system. It is a six speed automatic, some pancake electric motors, some clutches in there, and then a fairly small electric motor in the back. So there's a lot of torque steer, um, it doesn't feel like the Volvo plug-in hybrid system, even though design-wise, it's actually closer to what Volvo's doing than what Toyota's traditionally done. Okay, and do we have any guidance on pricing? Not a word yet, but soon. We expect it to be towards the upper end. There's obviously going to be some overlap with the regular Highlander. How much overlap, we don't know. All right, so here's a quick question before we kick into our main topic. Chat GTP, or, you know, GPT is all over the internet right now. Chat GPT, for those of you who have not seen this, is a sort of combination of two things that have existed for a long time, case-based logic and a search engine. And it does <laughs> wonderful things if you wanted to simulate a human being. Um, it, it's the closest thing I've ever seen that could pass a Turing test, which is indistinguishability from a human conversation. Mm -hmm. That said, if you look at Chat GPT and you look at autonomy right now, Chat GPT feels like the Terminator is almost here, whereas Tesla full self-driving doesn't know the difference between like a red and a green light. How can full self-driving yeah. after so many years and so many billions be this far behind an AI created by a startup? Because it's a much more difficult uh, thing to do to, to drive a car. You need to not only just talk with someone, language skills, but you have to be able to interpret the world around you and make decisions about that world around you. It's 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 considerably more difficult. I mean, just orders of magnitude more difficult. Um, I have a serious doubt as to whether we will see any sort of user end affordable self-driving thing in the way that people have been wanting Tesla full self-driving to be, uh, you know, at, at least for 10 years, if there's even customer demand for the price points that it would command. Full self-driving is bonkers crazy expensive. Um, and, it, and it's a hands-on the wheel system, uh, technically, according to Tesla and everything else that's out there. Yeah, you can sit back and, 
and do a hands-off thing. But you know, even by what they're telling the government regulatory agencies and their court filings when they get sued over these things, they're saying, "Oh no, 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 we're just kidding. It's not full self-driving." You know, telling people that all the hardware they needed on board is full self-driving enabled. We're just kidding on that one. That's a that's a hope, an aspiration, not a marketing claim. And that's that's really,、uh, I think, probably the most disappointing thing to some of the Tesla fans out there is that now Tesla has publicly said in official court filings that full self-driving is aspirational, not、uh, not not a not a marketing claim. And they basically also said the the engineer. Uh, uh, that they were that they were、uh, interviewing, I guess, deposing for for this whole lawsuit debacle,、uh, actually said that essentially the full self driving demo video from what four years ago? How long? How old is that thing? I think it was like 2016. But even so, yeah, like, we, it was all we, fake. Yeah, <laughs> we, we were on the cusp. We thought we were on the cusp of like you know robo taxis. And Elon Musk、mm-hmm. even said robo taxis are coming. That's our business model of the future. But for once, I'm not beating up on Tesla here because no one's anywhere near、oh, level、yeah. five. No, no one's anywhere near level level three. That's like marketable on the U.S. roads right now. Stuff like that's available overseas. I don't know how good it really is. Tesla full self driving is still level two, and significantly, it's only camera based. But it's、yeah. amazing to me that by some industry accounts, a hundred billion dollars have been vaporized on AI self driving cars. Yeah. And we're nowhere near it. Whereas ChatGPT makes it look like—I I mean, let's be honest—this thing can write an article about like Rococo architecture in Chinese in 15 seconds. It almost、yeah. seems like you're dealing with a very smart person or a sentient machine. Whereas actually driving a car, we're realizing how far we are from a human intellect. When, once you add all the inputs and the sensors and the environmental interactions. Yeah, and for for folks that aren't、uh, aren't familiar with the levels of car autonomy that we're talking about, here's what the SAE says: zero is no automation. Level one is regular driver assistance, like、uh, adaptive cruise control. Level two is systems like Blue Cruise and、uh, and Cadillac Super Cruise, where You're looking at the road. The system is doing the steering, but it's not assuming that you're that you're not paying attention. You're paying attention. You are in charge the entire time. Level three. A lot of manufacturers believe that level three is probably the most difficult to achieve because it is conditional automation. So conditionally, the driver. Can be doing something else, but they have to be ready to take over. And this has always been the the trouble with level three has been, what situation is so bad that autonomy cannot deal with it, and it must ask you to take over. But how is that situation predictable enough to tell you in enough time that you need to start paying attention and then be ready to take over? That's a tricky one. Level four is high levels of autonomy in geofence situations. So like we get on the highway. Now you may not pay attention, and it does all the highway stuff, but no city roads or things like that. And then level five is full in steering wheel free, get in robo taxi. It is amazing to me that I think back in 2016, if you'd ask people, are we closer to electrifying all cars or AI self driving cars? Like which which technical hurdle do you feel is easier to surmount? I thought back in 2016, 17, even 18, people would have said, "Look, we're going to have self-driving cars long before we have broad-scale electrification." And I think now, from the vantage point of 2023, that's sort of inverted. People are talking、mm-hmm. about, you know, by 2050, certainly having retired all of the gas-powered cars. No one's talking about level five anymore. 
not not to toot my own horn, but I was never on board with the autonomous revolution happening anytime soon. I have I have friends to friends to prove that. Very very uh, intense arguments over this topic. Uh, if nothing else, for I mean, there's the, not there's not just the technological hurdle to go over. There's the regulatory hurdle. Whose fault is it when your autonomous car hits something? You know, uh, is it the manufacturer of the car that's liable? Because nobody's going to make a car autonomous if that's the case. Like. General Motors will never sell you an autonomous car if General Motors is on the hook when you run over a five-year-old. That is not going to happen, right? Um, but also, there's some some strong uh, issues, some big issues surrounding autonomy and and the difficulty of programming these things in. If you simply want to make a car that can drive sort of like a timid 15-year-old from San Francisco, Los Angeles, we can do that today. Tesla has proven that fair weather good visibility, um, a little timid, a little crazy now and then in intersections where, you know, maybe the car doesn't cause an accident, but it's kind of an accessory to it. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, that kind of thing will definitely go wrong. And then on the highway, it seems to be just fine because that, that kind of situation is much more predictable. The lane lines are genuinely good. We have lots of good mapping information on the highway. Cars act in predictable manners. But what happens when there's, you know, a, a stalled car on the road? Well, sometimes Tesla's run into it. What happens when there's a police car on the side of the road? Um, you know, what happens when it's uh, a chair that's fallen off the back of a pickup truck? Does it hit the chair? Does it stop? Does it swerve? We don't know. Uh, what if it's not a chair and you program the car for the chair situation, but next time it's an ottoman? Uh, you know, does it know the difference? What if it's a mattress? Um, all these kinds of things are a problem. What do you do when visibility is poor? Uh, that's been a constant problem, right? I mean, there was the vault, the autonomous Volvo, the not Volvo software, mind you, I can't remember what the name of that company was, that hit the woman, remember, in the rain? Or was it and night? If your car is based entirely on, on cameras and it has mm -hmm. no radar, it has no, uh, no other means of sensing its surroundings, it's entirely dependent on what the lens can see. And the exactly. lens can't necessarily see any more than you can. Right. Um, so I, I would say also, yeah. if you've ever tried to merge dovetail into one lane around a construction zone, AI has an incredible fit trying to resolve that mm -hmm. and deal with it. Um, so basically, hey, kids, you know, Tic Tac Teens, chat GPT might be able to help you ace a take home test, but do not use it for a driver's test. Yeah, it would definitely be. I think it's a, that's that's a that's a decent hurdle away from us at this point in time. Uh, the raw computing power on board uh, of a car required also is is just really expensive. It's doable, logically, from what we can extrapolate. But is anybody willing to pay for the kind of high-end computing and data crunching also that you'd, that you'd require? I mean, in addition to the bonkers $10,000 upgrade on a Tesla. So I think uh, that leaves us at a bit of an impasse. So guys, don't worry, your robot overlords aren't coming anytime soon, especially if they have to drive to get you. They'll just so, take a Boston Dynamics, uh, you know, uh, insect robot that's way creepier anyway, with the eight well, legs. The, the funny thing is with the Boston Dynamics, we might wind up with autonomous horses that we can ride long before <laughs> we have autonomous cars, like robo horses. Let's do it. You know, it's, you know I, 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 I might be on board with that. Well, let's try the Robo Horse, see how it goes. Speaking of paying for capability you will not use, we have a very serious and warning for our overseas listeners. It's going to get awfully US centric, but a very serious discussion of 
pickup trucks in America over the mm. last 30 years. And we have seen some dramatic changes. They were always among the best sellers, but now as they've supplanted everything from the humble family sedan to the station wagon to the minivan and even the SUV, trucks are changing. And I'm not sure that we are changing that much in how we use them. Indeed. Uh, and I think that is that is an interesting point that we're not changing how we use them because uh, Americans never really did some of the things we think we did with pickup trucks back when pickup trucks were, you know, just two door long bed things. So that's part of the problem there. Um, if I go ahead and uh, oh, apparently I did not save the document that I thought of here. So my numbers might be off. Sorry, listeners here. But at any rate, if we take a look back in 1970, the best selling pickup truck in America was the Chevy uh, before the Chevy Silverado It was the CK series of trucks. It was specifically the C trucks because rear wheel drive vastly outsold four wheel drive. Can you guess by how much? Rear wheel drive outsold four wheel drive. I'm guessing it's like 90% because four wheel drive was like a Jeep thing only back then. Yeah, it was it was almost 95%. Uh, it was bonkers. Um, there's also been some, <clears throat> some uh, discussion around my statement uh, on Facebook about pickup trucks not being quite as at the level of importance, not quite as the as crazy of a sales volume thing back then as it was today. And some folks have pushed back on that saying, well, you know, uh, GM still sold a lot of pickup trucks. And indeed they did. They sold about 380 to 400,000 half ton trucks in 1970. When you take a look at truck sales numbers, folks out there, it's important to remember to separate uh, light duty and heavy duty trucks. We're talking about light duty trucks, F-150, um, Silverado 1500 and their predecessors back then. It used to be called the CK and of course the, uh, the F-100 at the time. Uh, and a lot of those numbers at the time when GM published those numbers, in the, the truck category, they also put Suburban and they put the vans and they put uh, chassis cabs and things like that in there as well. So be sure and separate all those out. any rate, so we're talking about 400,000 units. That was pretty good. But GM also shifted at one point in the 60s and 70s, about 5 million cars in the U.S. Now they're down to about 2.5 million cars in the U.S., but around 700,000 half-ton trucks. So the share of General Motors offerings in the United States that was a truck went from, I don't know, 10, 8 10%, something like that, to a full third of the manufacturer's volume. So as far as importance, half-ton trucks are very, very important in a way that they weren't quite as important back then. Um, so with that framing in mind, uh, we now have also have an America that is shifted from about 25% of the population living in rural America at uh, in the 1970s, 1970 specifically in that census, to the last census in the United States where it's under 10% living in rural America. Uh, and yet we have more half-ton trucks sold, and it's not because more people are off-roading. It's not because more people are towing or hauling or doing farm or ranch work. It's because it's become the family car. It has four doors and that's fantastic. <laughs> and that's, I mean, before we get into exactly how people are using this thing, I found it ironic that the number one criticism leveled at the F-150 Lightning was that you can't tow long distances with it. Mm -hmm. And in an America where people rarely even road trip, the idea of road tripping and doing it with, a, I don't know, three horses um, as basis for just categorically discounting a car, it seemed a strange one. So yeah. let's look at how people are actually using their trucks. In 2019, Strategic Vision polled a broad base of pickup truck owners, everyone from contractors to family men to folks who use them recreationally or even just as commuters. And the number one indexed use for 
full-size half-ton trucks was pleasure driving. Mm-hmm. That was in 2019. Now, recently, Axios did an interesting study where they went and they surveyed um, about 1,200 F-150 owners who owned 2012 to 2021 F-150s. They found that the number one use was shopping and errands. The number two use was <laughs> pleasure driving. Yeah. And if you're wondering how many people used these trucks for towing frequently, it was exactly 7% of them. Yes. So it's like there are people that want to tow regularly with their truck. And, you know, this is not leveled at you. If you do that regularly with your truck, don't buy the Lightning. You probably weren't interested in it anyway. There is a gasoline or a diesel truck for you. That's This is not the vehicle that fits your lifestyle. But if you are that person that is using it for commuting, you're using it for shopping, and you're never towing anything, it's like there's an absolutely bonkers percentage. You have to correct me on the data here, but it was something like almost 90% rarely or never tow. And they never, they did not give us a separate answer for never. It was just rarely or never. Like who knows where we are in this thing. Yeah, it was was 93% either occasionally or rarely or never tow with their truck. Now here's the thing. My uncle, Mark, he was he was a uh, carpenter, self-taught. He was for 30 years out on Long Island, building houses, building decks, building porches. Later on, when he you know started to hurt his back and break down physically, he became a contractor. He always had a Conaline Vans because he said, honestly, Tim, look, I like the pickups, but am I really going to leave all my tools out in the rain at a work site? Mm-hmm. Um, am I going to leave things that cost me, you know, like loan money? that I can afford to buy once every five years? Am I going to leave them out where people can get yeah. them? Um, that is true. So he always had these vans that were built on full-size truck platforms, but he needed a housed container for his, his stuff. And when he finally did get a pickup truck at the end, it was, you know, at the point he'd become a contractor, he had more money, but he wasn't actually doing the job himself anymore. That was mm-hmm. a full crew cab for his now burgeoning family. Um, and so it became the family car and the Econoline was always the work truck. If you look at the price of pickup trucks in America now, I mean, it's all over the map, but the benchmark half-ton pickup is, is selling for between sixty dollars and $65,000 average transaction price. Even in this era of inflation, the average car sells between about, I want to say it's like $48,000. Mm-hmm. So yep. there's a big delta there. Now, there are yep. tons of contractor-grade, steel-wheel, whitewashed, minimum-option work trucks out there to get that average transaction price up to sixty to sixty-five thousand, you've got to have an awful lot of four hundred and fifty horsepower leather-lined urban cowboy trucks. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's and it's obvious when you take a look at how trucks, what trucks are being sold, what trim levels are going, what body styles are popular, etc. That it's really obvious what the average truck buyer is doing with their truck. Uh, the sales of of big cab small bed trucks are through the roof, which is why the average truck out there has gone from a, a time where it was sixty percent bed, you know, uh, thirty thirty five percent cab, something like that, to the exact opposite, where the beds are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. You know, now we're down to uh, six and a half foot beds being by far the most common format. Five and a half foot beds being popular is probably just right around the corner to be perfectly honest, because more room on the inside is what people seem to want. Enough that Ford and General Motors won't even sell you anything approaching mid-level or up-end trims uh, with just the regular cab long bed format. It's basically just the bottom end of the lineup. And Ram didn't even bother designing a new cab for their truck uh, in regular cab format. If you want a regular cab and eight foot bed, you gotta buy the old truck. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, it, this is a recent trend. I mean, in 2001, Ford, for the first time, offered a regular production 
um, full crew cab. That is four mm -hmm. full-size doors. Basically, everything you would get in an SUV except the housed over cargo area. And whereas 30 years ago, 37% of the truck was cab and 63% was bed, now it's exactly the opposite. 37% is bed and 63% is cab. And we've even got an upcoming Ram EV that might have a sort of an embryonic sort of third row. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what that looks like. And it is funny because the concept of the full four-door cab dates back to the 1950s. International had one, um, and it was hideous, absolutely positively hideous. Sorry if you're an international fan. I think that that was the ugliest truck I have ever seen, including the Cybertruck, and I need to put my eyes out now. Uh, but after that, we started getting tiny little doors. We got a three-door truck. We got a four-door truck, baby back seat, you know, unusable little squished area back there. And they kept growing and growing, growing. But I did find it surprising because somehow I thought that four-door trucks existed before 2001. But no, as we know them today, that Ford you mentioned, that was the first one that we think about from a big three auto manufacturer that had four actual real doors and real SUV-like room in the back. And it's funny because when I was a little kid back in the late 80s, my dad had, I guess, what you describe as like the forerunner of today's Nissan Frontier, but it was a king cab. And king cab meant <laughs> it, had, it, it had these two like jump seats that would fold down. Um, so you'd be facing like left, right across the, the interior of the truck. And, you know, we were blown away back then that someone had a pickup truck with a seat in the back. It was yeah. unheard of in Georgia in like 1989. Back I was when, blown away that someone would sit in them. <laughs> Well, you know, I was, you know, five years old, but um, still. No need, I, no need for child seats, remember. <laughs> I mean, if you were like, you know, a, a cowboy back then, you know, the ultimate like cowboy Camaro was standard cab short bed V8. And then mm -hmm. if you were like a sporty fellow, you'd get it with a manual transmission. Try to find a standard cab short bed pickup today. Go ahead. Try it. You won't find yep. it in the United States. You might be able to get like a Silverado sold in Mexico with that. Yep. That's You will not find it in the United States today. Mm -hmm. You definitely won't find it with a manual transmission. But, uh, in a weird in a weird world, you know what? I I will I will eat my hat if if this ever happens again. But I would buy a regular cab five and a half or six foot bed half ton truck that could tow 10,000, 15,000 pounds. That would be absolutely perfect because trucks have become so large that you would have to shrink the bed to that size to make it easier to park and easier to maneuver. But if it still had all the, the truck internals and a, a nice boxed frame, et cetera, that could do 10,000, 15,000 pounds of towing capability, maybe a you know an attachment for a gooseneck or fifth wheel, that would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, I would buy one of those in a heartbeat. Turning circle under 40 feet, that would be great. Problem is, no one does that with their truck in reality. Everyone thinks that they do. There is this definite, like, one day I might go to Home Depot and decide that I'm going to build my own deck and I'm going to buy all the lumber myself. Well, I mean, maybe you'll do that one day. But guess what? You could do that in your five and a half foot or six and a half foot bed truck. Stuff's going to stick out a lot. Um, or, you know, you could have the larger lumber delivered. Uh, if you're doing eight foot stuff, that's great. It'll 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 hang out the back. If you're out getting 20-foot beams, that's not going to work in an 8-foot bed either. You need a lumber rack or you need a trailer or you should just call the flatbed dude and have it delivered. And if you're, I mean, look, 
every person my uncle knew who used a pickup for work would get a standard cab and they would get an extended bed. Because if you're really working with the truck, you're going to want to put in a bed chest because mm -hmm. you can't house over your tools. You're going to at least want to lock them up and protect them from the rain. Yep. So once you add a bed chest to some of these crew cab pickup beds, you've got nothing. You've got about as much storage yeah, space. There's nothing left as you'll have behind the seat in like a two door mm -hmm. Wrangler. I mean, there's nothing left once you put a bed chest back there. It's basically just a trunk with a tailgate. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and I'm not beating up on pickup truck owners and enthusiasts. I think there've been some pickup trucks that I thought were super cool that weren't terribly practical. I thought the original GMC Cyclone was awesome. I loved the second and first generation Ford F-150 Lightnings, especially the supercharged truck around the turn of the century. Those were all really cool, especially when they were step side, they looked really neat. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, I have a Corvette, which is a fun car. I don't really pretend that I might someday need to autocross at an SCCA event. Therefore, I have my Corvette just in case mm. the day comes that someone puts a gun to my head and I've got to autocross my road car. Um, and I think we haven't quite reached that point where people are honest with themselves about why they buy pickup trucks. Because back in the 90s, yeah. we all told ourselves this lie that we needed SUVs like the Explorer and the Grand Cherokee and in the early 90s, the, the Wagoneer, because someday we might have to go off-road. And then eventually we gave that up. We gave up the off-road capability, the locking low ranges, the ground clearance, um, the body on frame construction, and pretty much the SUVs turned into tall station wagons. Mm -hmm. And everyone's fine with that. Today's, I mean, I don't know how a Subaru Crosstrek is technically a truck, but the fact that we consider it that way means we got over our off-road excuses about why we were buying these things. So I'm just wondering, will people ever say, look, I think trucks are cool. I will never tow. I will never haul. I am never going to be a contractor or a landscaper, yeah. but I want that capability anyway, just cause, and I'm willing to pay a 15 to $20,000 price premium to have it. Well, the, uh, the Crosstrek is cafe classified as a car. So it depends on, depends on which government agency you ask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the, <laughs> In a way, the reality is uh, you know, there, there are people that are offended by calling a truck a lifestyle vehicle because they assume, assume that's associated with a, a, a convertible or a this or that or something else. All vehicles are lifestyle vehicles. I don't care what vehicle it is, whether you're buying a, a true medium-duty truck or the tiniest little thing ever. They're all lifestyle vehicles. You know, do you want what do you want your vehicle to say about you? How does it look? How does it what do whatever it is you want it to do? Is a consideration on absolutely everybody's minds, and it's not singling pickup truck owners out to say that. I mean, if you're if you're buying uh, an SUV. Who's out there going, I want the ugliest SUV ever. I want it to look like none of my friends drive it. I want it to look like, uh, you know, turd on a stick. Um, no one's saying, <laughs> no one's saying that, but there is this group that is like that, uh, that is almost in denial of it. They, they're like, oh no, that's not why I bought this. I bought it because I must have this. Uh, but I would say that goes for every category of vehicle. You know, I have two kids. I must have the three row vehicle. Well, okay. You have two kids. Like, What's what's going on with the uh, the other four seats in the car? <laughs> um, and it's that it's that 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 shopping for the occasional. It's um you know well the grandparents might come now and then. Maybe I'm gonna find a carpool to join and I'll have to be able to shuttle all the kids around. Um, that sort of thing. 
Maybe I'm going to buy the Wrangler because I moved to Portland and I might go off-roading one day. Those sorts of things. And the pickup truck falls into that same category. You know, I'm going to buy the pickup truck because I want to take up rock climbing and I need somewhere to put my gear, things like that. Yeah, it's it's a combination of your delusional gym membership, <laughs> your automotive aspirations all rolled into one. Yeah. I mean, if if practicality and reality were a thing, a lot of Americans would be just fine with a two-seat vehicle in the family. Because if you're commuting regularly, uh, there are cars, people, lots of families out there, even people with children are never driving with the children in one of their cars in the family. So if you're a multi-car household and there's a commuter car, why is that commuter car a four-seat car? Are you really going to get the booster seats, the child seats, forward-facing or rear-facing, whatever kind of child seat or child restraint device you have, are you really going to get it out and trade it around the vehicles? Or are you in the category where you're just like, I'm going to buy a child seat for everything? Um, I don't know many people, even relatively wealthy people that are on that front. Usually the child seats go in the one, the kids need to come. They go in the kid car. The other car, eh. So, you know, it's that same logic. I mean, here's the thing. If, if you have all the money in the world and you don't have to park the thing and you just want a lifestyle vehicle that, you know, makes you feel rough and tough and maybe every once in a while you're going to use it for, I don't know, some soft roading or towing. You're going to throw the Christmas tree in the back. That's all fine. But there are practical ways you sort of become a prisoner of a huge vehicle when you have it. And I guess from a, a car buyer's guidance standpoint, where we're coming from here is that first your, your challenge is going to be price, because unless you mm -hmm. are buying that steel wheel, two wheel drive V6 or, or four cylinder turbo whitewashed landscapers truck, if you really are spending $65,000 on a full size truck, and a lot of people are buying those on 84 month um, loans right now, you're going to become a prisoner of the price of the thing. That's a lot of money to lay out for a vehicle that you can't pay yeah. off quickly. If you're taking a loan that's five, six, seven years long, you definitely got to ask whether you're getting your money's worth on a full-size truck. Second, there's driving. I mean, look, they're very fun to drive, and today they even drive reasonably like cars, but go ahead and try to maneuver a truck in anything like traffic. Go ahead and try to park it. I, I mean, go ahead and try to maneuver it in city traffic and get around in a vehicle that has four full-size doors and a truck bed and weighs, you know, six to 7,000 pounds. It, it's an absolute chore. And then you get in a car, you get in something like a RAV4 or a crossover, you're like, I, I feel like I've got four-wheel steering even if I don't. The difference between a full-size truck and any normal mm -hmm. vehicle is huge. And then, yeah. you know, you are locked into a six, seven-year loan on your truck and gas prices go crazy because Putin does something even stupider or geopolitical issues in the Middle East or a refinery blows up down in Louisiana. All of a sudden, gas is five dollars again. And you've got to put 30 gallons of it in because you've got a real super commute. You know, you've got one of those American style commutes where you spend an hour or more in your car each day and you've got to feed the beast. And now you're nowhere near being able to get out of that mm -hmm. thing and you've got to fuel it up. So. You know, I'm not obviously anyone playing cowboy. I play race car driver in my Corvette. <laughs> I'm not Johnny O'Connell. I'm not Ron Fellows. I never will be. Um, but there are costs to owning a truck of like course, this. Yeah. But you got to be ready for the costs that exist now and the ones that might spring up on you if you have to move to a crowded area, if gas prices go up, if you lose your job or you have to take a job with a lower income and you have to pay those bills. Uh, there are a lot of disadvantages to buying what would be, you know, statistically your average half ton truck today. Yep. My advice is a little bit more simple. Buy what you like, 
and uh, that will make make you happier. Uh, but if you are questioning what should I do, the vast the reality is the vast majority of car shoppers are not asking for this level of advice. They've already decided what they want, and they want affirmation that they're making the right decision. That's lovely. Buy what you want. Buy what will make you happy. But if you are questioning, really think about some of the things we've talked about. Yeah. Buy used. Pre-owned is great. Buy mid-sized. Less size is better. And if you can, and this is my advice to anyone buying a car, for the car you have to drive every day, pay as much of it as you can on the down payment in cash or just buy the thing outright if you can write the check. Avoid loans mm -hmm. if you can. Yep. Yep. But remember, if you don't buy it new, no one else will have it used because it's got to be new to be used. That's true. That's true. Well, I'm, I'm and that is and that guy. is a current and that is currently a problem we have right now. Used car inventory is very tight in the U.S. Uh, because there aren't as many new cars being purchased over the last few years and fewer cars are being leased. Uh, a lot more people seem to have moved to purchases over the last uh, three year stint or so. So uh, that is actually becoming a, a relatively uh, big problem uh, soon in the U.S. If we don't see an uptick in, in new car production, if we don't see an uptick in leasing, uh, the used car market is going to get yet more constrained and uh, more of a tricky place to be. Okay, so I think we should talk about the electric car that was killed off by factors perhaps beyond the control of any one person. We Everyone mm. loves the celebrated case of the EV1, which <laughs> I suppose is like your greeny alternative to a 1990s, since we're pickup theme today, like a 1990s Ranger EV. So let's say you wanted a purpose-built EV back in the 1990s, and you didn't want a lead-acid battery-powered mid-size Ford truck. Well, the EV1 appeared to point the way to the future. It was based on the GM Impact concepts, and it was, for its time, a frame-up, no-compromise, dedicated EV uh, in an era when no one was doing that. Yep. It did not last. There were two yep. generations. Of course, designed for a lead-acid battery, too, though. <laughs> yeah. there, were, there were two generations. There were about 660 of the Gen 1s with the lead acid, and then there were nickel-metal hydride, like 450, 460 of them, which were more capable. But this was a vehicle that was probably doomed from the start, Alex, and I think oh, the yeah. reason one is it was a freaking two-door, two-seat coupe. Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always found it fascinating that there is this this cabal, shall we say, uh, that that is convinced there was some drastic plot out there to kill the EV1. Uh, the EV1 was a compliance car. Uh, the the government said it must exist. General Motors begrudgingly made it exist, and in order to meet the demands of of the of the era for range and reality and just the the level of technology that we had at the time uh, it came as a very very small car it was 169 inches long it was teeny tiny most of that was bumper it looked like a toy car it only seated two people etc so when we look realistically at the ev1's prospects nobody had to kill it there was no conspiracy it was stillborn it was never going to get off the ground anyway it was thirty three thousand nine hundred ninety five dollars you could have bought a mid-level mercedes-benz c-class for that pricing to get two seats and a very optimistic 79 miles of range it took nine seconds to go zero to 60. it was just 137 horsepower you had nowhere to charge it um and general motors more importantly lost in 1997 dollars approximately a hundred thousand dollars for every ev1 they built and that is quite 
a thing to to note. A hundred thousand dollars in '90s money was an enormous amount back then. Mm -hmm. uh, Porsche 911 was seventy to eighty thousand dollars. A Corvette started, I believe. Yep. I would say the C5 initially was like, I think it was like thirty-eight, thirty-nine thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. Corvette, um, you could get a loaded up cowboy Cadillac F-150 with leather and everything uh, for that kind of money. The EV1 is an interesting car because in an era of compliance cars, it was the one that represented a real moonshot effort to build a dedicated EV. Now, to be totally fair, the later nickel metal hydride really did have more range, more capability. They were quicker. They could go 100 miles, but they were still very limited in what they could do. Mm -hmm. And if you think public charging infrastructure is lackluster today, imagine being at the mercy of 110-volt plugs everywhere you yeah. went back in the 90s. The problem with the EV1 nickel metal hydride was that it was even more expensive. So the loss yeah. was even larger than $100,000. Uh, it was still just as slow as the lead acid one. It was rated for 105 miles, but that was dreadfully optimistic still. So real world range was definitely below 100 miles. And you could no longer charge the nickel metal hydride uh, EV1 on the level one of the day charge cords. So there were paddles. It was an inductive paddle that yeah. you actually had to stick in the car. It's kind of the size of a book. You'd like grab your book and you'd push it in the slot like a VCR right. tape. Right. Um, and because of some of the realities around the nickel metal batteries, charging profiles and uh, all nickel metal hydride battery chemistry, just generally speaking, uh, it was not a great solution. Um, not only could you not charge at 120 volts, so you drove to your friend's house that was maybe 50 miles away you probably couldn't get back home and you could not plug in at your friend's house to gain any charge because you could not charge 120 volts. You could plug the old ones in. The lead acid one had a temporary portable charge cord, but the cooling system in the nickel metal hydride model and the just general inefficiencies of nickel battery chemistry charging meant that you gained almost no range while plugging it in. So you just burnt 1500 watts for nothing. Uh, was the problem there. Um, nickel metal hydride batteries, there was also this this huge conspiracy that, you know, oh, General Motors uh, sold the technology to Exxon, Chevron, whoever it was, and that was that was who put the, the death knell on nickel metal battery technology. It was never a good fit for an electric vehicle. Um, they can't fast charge like you can fast charge a lithium ion battery, but yet you can't slow charge them like you can slow charge a lithium-ion battery either. So charging a nickel battery slowly is actually bad for battery life. Nickel batteries have memory issues. So if you don't completely charge and discharge the battery on a regular basis, they can suffer from a memory issue and then you can't actually use the whole battery anymore. Biggest problem is if you think your Tesla's power hungry when it's parked, nickel metal hydride batteries have a hugely rapid self-discharge rate. They will generally discharge, depending on the chemistry, 5 to 20% in just the first few days. And then between half a percent and 4% per day for every day after that. It wasn't until 2005 that there was a new battery chemistry developed for nickel metal hydride batteries that would cut that down to 70% discharge after a year. So imagine, you know, in a Tesla, you turn off your sentry mode, etc. You put it into sleep mode. You come back after a month and you're like, oh, I only have half a battery left. That's actually a good thing, because if you did that in a nickel metal hydride EV1, you'd come back and it would be dead, dead, dead. Uh, on the bright side, they don't tend to brick as easily as lithium batteries, and they do suffer less from temperature fluctuations. So hot weather, cold weather, it generally is easier on the battery. Um, but all of these things together just meant that nickel metal chemistry was never going to work right in an EV.
that's very important to note because I think some people get a little bit, I, I mean, they look at where nickel metal hydride has worked and has worked well in certain hybrid applications, mm -hmm. but it's not the kind of thing that scales, you know, because yep. it works in a 1.5 kilowatt format doesn't mean you can multiply that by 30 and get the same result. Exactly. And think and, about how that hybrid system uses the battery. When it self-discharges, does it matter? No, because it's a hybrid. It's not an EV. You know, does the uh, uh, the memory effect have an issue? No, because the EV system can deliberately cycle the battery when it needs to to keep that memory effect at bay. But this is also why Toyota has dedicated to the nickel metal hydride battery in their hybrids for quite some time because of some of the de definite advantages that it does have in a hybrid specifically, um, in the wide temperature range uh, ability of the battery, it's uh, greater ability to or tendency lower tendency to catch fire. That's definitely a good thing. Uh, lower energy density means less likely to burst into flames. Lower energy density also means lower cooling requirements. So that's why they can be air cooled rather than be liquid cooled. Also important to note is that there were some practical and intangible reasons that the EV1 didn't succeed. Aside from being exactly the wrong type of car for the market, I mean, let's face it, the American personal car, the two-door, mm -hmm. like luxury car, the two-door uh, personal statement was going out in the 90s. We saw the end of the Mercury Cougar, the Ford Thunderbird, the Lincoln Mark 8, the Eldorado. And to the kind of person who had EV1 money and the kind of interest in an EV1 that you, you know, typically saw at the time, in general, we were looking at people who had upscale lifestyles. You know, they had room for a third or a fourth car. They were the kind of person who in a different era would have bought like an Eldorado or a Lincoln Mark. Um, so that market was ebbing. The two-door car just for one dude was disappearing. And there were other problems like the EV1 looked like a Saturn, even though it was technically the only General Motors branded product. Yep. And that, you know, Saturn was kind of like the butt of jokes by the late 90s. It might have been a revolutionary retail model by American car standards in the mm -hmm. early 90s. By the late 90s, it was the kind of thing that like the Ellen Show would joke about um, or Seinfeld would joke about. Yeah. And it didn't help that. And this is an, this is a practical constraint rather than an intangible one. The car's market was very limited. It was available in the West, the Southwest, and briefly in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So even if you were that person who was willing to get on board with a weird lease, a limited vehicle, and you know, basically a pilot production program, you probably couldn't get one. And there were a lot of people in New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey yeah. who had signed up, but they couldn't get the car. Exactly. There was a big problem. And this that I think that led to the conspiracies and then the fact that they were all leased furthered the conspiracy. So you could not buy an EV1 like you could buy a first generation RAV4 EV. And this is often the parallel that's cited in some of these conspiracy theories. Uh, you could buy the RAV4 EV, it used nickel metal hydride batteries, but it's it launched in 97. So it launched after the EV1 and after the EV1 had moved to nickel batteries as well. So GM spent a lot of money developing kind of a second generation EV1, one on lead acid batteries, another with the drivetrain re-optimized for nickel batteries. That was pretty expensive there to start with. Um, supplies of nickel metal batteries were very, very limited. It was very much like the lithium ion start back when the first production EVs uh, in the current generation started. Um, they'd only been used in laptops for, I believe, it was like four years prior to that. So we're in a world where 
consumer electronics had had yet to get on board with these things. You were still buying portable phones at home that used NICAD batteries. That was what was going on in all of our consumer electronics homes, NICAD batteries, not nickel metal hydride. Um, so it was that world that these things were, were starting in. Um, and then in order to cut their losses, GM said, you know what, we're just going to, we're just not going to renew the lease. All the leases are going to end. We're going to crush them all. We don't want to deal with this. We want to forget about all the money that we spent, throw no more money on the fire. It'll be over. Um, and Tesla, Toyota let you keep them, um, which I think might have been the only misstep GM really made in this program. They had to, they did it because they had to, so they followed along, they did the thing they needed to do but then they could have left them out there. They were worried about warranty issues, which is logical. Um, you know, if you have a the, the warranty time period that was required, if they had sold those again or let people keep the lease, there still would have been a warranty period that they would have to uh, support and service the vehicle for. And that would have meant cost on their side, cost for all these unique components, crash tech components, um, you know, service components, et cetera. lots of cost wrapped up into that. Um, a lot of folks don't think about the cost of supporting a new vehicle on the marketplace. It's not just the building the car. It's the fact that you have to have a certain number of warranty components for uh, for warranty replacements or crash replacements, et cetera, warehoused all over the U.S. And there's inventory control and management and all that. It's a, it's a major pain in the bottom for car companies to deal with when we're talking about low-volume trims and low-volume models. But... I think it actually would have served them better if they'd done that. I think they were looking at parts support and service support. There were so few service centers that were even trained to work on the car. Mm -hmm. What does a fire department you know, need to do to safely cut a person out of this car? How do yeah. you disseminate that information and create training programs for, for rescue authorities? Um, you look at Tesla, which makes a million cars a year. And look at how much trouble they have providing subframe suspension components and body panels for cars to get involved in crashes. Yeah. It can take weeks, sometimes mm -hmm. even months. Tesla is a t Tesla is a pretty committed EV startup. I don't feel like this is a tangential business for them, and it's still a challenge. So to take roughly 1,100, 1,200 cars and have a national scale sales and service and and maintenance setup with the tools. Yeah diagnostic equipment which was all unique parts that were built barely above the prototype level of fabrication they it was almost like series production prototype where every piece is bespoke and the very tooling to make the parts is itself prototype um yep. it, it would have been very expensive whereas a lot of those other cars like the ranger ev or the toyota rav4 ev they were based on vehicles that were already widely sold so at the very least if you need a body panel you can get it whereas with the ev1 GM probably did too good a job of building a purpose-built EV. Yeah, It didn't share any body panels, those famous plastic Saturn body panels. You didn't get them on the EV1, or you didn't get them in any sense that was interchangeable. So crushing them was a bad look. What they should have done is they should have donated them all to university engineering departments, museums, display only for dealers that wanted to keep one for historic reasons. Um, that would have been the way to deal with them. Just try to give as many as you can to charities, to uh, 
just organizations that can display it, learn from it, or curate its history. Crushing the car was rather extreme. And since these weren't on like an import visa, the way the old Chrysler turbine cars were, there was no need to crush them. Because you remember the turbine car yeah. was Chrysler. The turbine car was the EV1 of the 60s. I mean, it's it's yeah. just the, it's a matter of where, where else, what else are you going to do with it? I mean, you have 500 cars you're pulling back. There aren't that many museums, et cetera. So, I mean, the crushing is just a thing. That's just how they happen. Like almost, almost all the cars that I drive, uh, end up in a crusher at some point. A lot of people don't realize that the pre-production vehicles that we drive, they can never be sold because they may or may not meet all the FMVSS standards that they're required to meet. Um, so the vast majority of them, especially if I'm driving around, if you see in a video and I'm driving around in a car with a manufacturer plate on it, that car is probably headed to the crusher when this model year is over. So uh, the regular crushing of cars is just a thing that car companies are very used to in a way. So it, it just wouldn't have been a weird thing for them to do. Um, the, uh, the, the point about it being based on a unique platform is very relevant because RAV4, they just basically grabbed a RAV4, tweaked a few things, jammed some batteries on there, but all the body panels, et cetera, could still be just pulled off of another RAV4 in an accident, et cetera. Uh, and Toyota did sell more of them, so that might have helped some of the logic around that. They sold about 1,500 RAV4s uh, in the uh, the few years after the EV7 went wrong. Uh, so I think it was 97 to 2003, something like that. Um, and then there were, there were leases and purchases available in the RAV4, but its range wasn't really any better. I'll also say this, it's worth exploring where the EV1 came from because there was a class of vehicle called the compliance car that's almost entirely dead today. I think, what is it, like the Mazda MX-30 or something, like Mazda has an EV with a hundred mile range. That is a compliance car and possibly yeah. the last like of the entire compliance car genre. But back in 1990, the California Air Resources Board, which had existed for decades dating back to the 60s, um, created something called a zero emissions vehicle program. Mm -hmm. And this was an aspirational project to introduce vehicles that did not intrinsically emit anything. The, you know, mm -hmm. power plants emit, power sources emit, but the vehicles themselves were not supposed to emit. And this gave birth to the ZEV-1 and LEV-1 standards, uh, whereby initially the top seven automakers by volume in California would have to sell a certain number of cars that had absolutely no intrinsic emissions. Yep. Uh, now, the first thing I want to say about this is that it was completely impossible using the technology of 1990. California knew that. The automakers knew that. There were no illusions about this actually happening in the short term. It was aspirational. Another mm -hmm. thing people need to know about these zero emissions vehicle programs is that they have continuously been pushed back as technology and practicality have intervened in aspirational idealism. So these have never been hard mm -hmm. and fast rules. Um, also, the initial efforts were almost all tepid compliance cars. They gave birth to a genre of vehicle that existed to comply with the LEV1 and the LEV2 so that these large automakers could continue to tap California's massive right. market for conventional cars. So although they were I would although I would argue that at their at their heart, every zero emissions vehicle we see in the United States is still truly a compliance car because Toyota would not be financially a viable company uh, for the last uh, up until the last maybe about two years or so. Anything prior to that was really dependent on Zev credit and car and car uh, sorry cafe credit sells sales. So that's largely where a lot of profit came from. And even now, if you were to remove 
the CAFE and ZEV compliance credits from Tesla's uh, bottom line, they would most likely be losing money. We don't have all the details there on their financials because some of it's just shrouded in the way things are reported, but that is a, a big business. So, you know, uh, their logical reason that Ford is making lots of EV trucks, et cetera, also is to balance that, that ZEV credit thing out because they're not making money in their own right. And I think that is the big thing when people talk about Tesla's profitability is, Yes, Tesla has a good margin. What would that margin be if they weren't including the sales of those ZEV credits to other companies so that they can continue to make gasoline vehicles? Uh, it might be zero, and it would certainly be less than a mainline auto company in the U.S. That's so kind of a weird twist there when you think about the way that some of those financials work. It's, you know, Tesla's got 20% margin. Okay, but is that 20% go to zero or does it go negative when you deduct those credits? And then how would we compare that to say a Mach-E, which is theoretically breaking even at the moment, maybe. There's some rumor that it might actually be losing money now. It was profitable at the beginning, resources have gone up, Mach-E might be break even or losing money, but they're not selling those ZEV credits. And if they were, then they could call it a profitable car like Tesla's calling their cars profitable. I'm going to make a distinction between compliance cars and ZEV credits just because the compliance cars were a no-go, no, uh, a no-go, um, or a go-no-go. There we go. Um, so here's the thing. If you didn't have the cars on the market, you could not sell cars. So it was a serious impediment to doing any business in California. Now, subsequently, the whole idea of tradable emissions credits um, did contribute to Tesla's survival, particularly when they were trying to ramp up the Model 3 in 2016, 17, and 18. They stayed in business because of those tradable credits. There's no question about that. But Tesla is not itself building compliance cars because it's not building right. its cars so that it can in turn sell the gas cars that actually make the money. There's just the there's just the the there's the just the question of is ever is isn't intrinsically every Zev car a compliance car? Now there's there's the there's the oh we threw minimal effort at the EV and it's only five miles range. That's very easily classified as a compliance car. But when we take a look at Tesla's financials, they sold 2.1 billion bit with a B billion dollars of credits in 2021. But what was their gross revenue? Uh, let's see here. It's going to well, be. Well, the question is, what's the te what was Tesla's profit in twenty one? I mean, here's the thing: Tesla hasn't required those credits to survive for a while. They've been consistently profitable. I would say at this point, no Tesla is a compliance car because ultimately they're selling EVs so that they can sell EVs. Um, and now, for other companies, I think right now the reason they're selling EVs is not so much in order to perpetuate gas sales forever. I, I think it's First, trying to learn these technologies so that once EVs become the standard in the industry, they'll be able to sell them profitably in all cases. Like, I think they realize at this point that if you're selling nothing but gas powered cars by 2030, you're probably not viable as an automaker. And, you know, all of the reasons that people bought EV1s and Honda EV pluses and, you know, the Ford Ranger Electric in the 90s. It's not the reason people are buying Mach-E's and Tesla's mm -hmm. Lucid's. That's right. It's not It's not the same reason now. But yeah. remember, the ZEV credit mandate at the time was not you have to offer it for sale. It has to be a percentage of your sales or you have not complied. So you can't just offer really, it. They were really. Right. But yeah, it's, like 200 a year. Well, EV1, I mean, right, it was 2%, but still imagine imagine getting someone to buy 2% of the EV1. I mean, that just that just would never have happened at that price point, et cetera. 
Um, nobody's ever been able to shift that many of those, which is why the credit trading scheme was invented, which is why we have general compliance now. And the answer for 2021 was that a full approximate half of Tesla's profit in 2021 was simply Zev credits. That makes sense, but it, we're not at survival levels. They no, were but that's why I'm that's why I'm saying like the last last two to three years been fine, but prior to that, the entire history prior to 2020, Tesla depended on those Zev credit sales for survival. They would not have been in business if it wasn't for the Zev no, credits. I, I agree with you on that. I would say particularly like in like 16, 17, 18, oh, yeah. they were emerging money trying mm -hmm. to set up the Model Three production. But I would also say that of those Zev credits were like 99% sold to Fiat Chrysler? Uh, it's hard to tell because companies, let's see who they sold them to. Um, lots, Mercedes, Mercedes, no, Mercedes and BMW, Porsche, et cetera, are big buyers of Zev credits. Um, and like Honda sells Zev credits, for instance. I would also say the other reason EVs today aren't compliance cars is because they're often available in at least the lower 48. They're available everywhere, including places mm -hmm. where there are no compliance requirements. And if you're selling EVs in Texas or Alabama or Mississippi, and they are now, rest assured, those are not engineered to meet any requirement. They can sell all the ah. pickups they want without selling a single EV. Ah, but they're as they are a compliance car of a different nature because they still have to meet cafe regulations. And that is largely why, for instance, Ford sells their EVs and plug-in hybrids in every state because Ford wants the cafe credits. So it is still a compliance mechanism in a way, depending on how you want to look at it, which is why every other car company uh, that sells them in all 50 states is doing that as well, or it's like the Zev plus whatever states. That's where customer interest is. So they can they can sort of narrow the market a little bit to just the Zev states plus a few extras. So that way they don't have to have all the dealers certified but they are interested in bringing them everywhere because for every zero emissions vehicle they sell, they get a massive cafe boost so they don't have to pay cafe fines. And that is the twist here is that California operates in this credit scheme and there is some penalty for not having the ZEV credits, but the bigger penalty generally is cafe compliance nationally in the US, which is why we have so many plug-in hybrids uh, around and why everybody's interested in some form of electrification or fuel economy bump in a pickup truck because that category uh, needs the extra credit. Yeah, but I think I don't think the cafe penalty is a big deal at all. I mean, what is it per car? It's nothing. It's, it's like, about a hundred. It's now about one hundred fifty dollars per vehicle per mile per gallon that the target is missed. Yeah, given the way cafe regulations are actually written, the fuel economy that you and I see on the road is not the fuel economy for cafe purposes. Mm -hmm. So, honestly, with the margins built into a full size truck, I don't think they're getting clobbered there. And most SUVs today are just two inch lifted compact five door hatchbacks. Um, so I'm not totally sure that EVs are necessary to keep these automakers in business because of cafe penalties. I don't think it's as big a deal as it looks at face value. Um, I will also say this too. The automakers have to build an industrial base to make these EVs. That's why you're seeing mm -hmm. so many new plants in Kentucky and Tennessee and Georgia. Um, they're, they're building entirely new battery factories, assembly plants, engineering facilities. And you've got to ramp all that stuff up long before EVs become broadly profitable. Because if you yeah. have to start cold turkey with no access to minerals, no battery factories, no manufacturing partners, uh, you know, no engineering facilities that are steeped in EV engineering, 
you're going to just be dead. Like that's why people mm -hmm. are making such a big deal about Toyota being late to the game. It's not that Toyota lacks the industrial scope or the ability. The question is, does it is it meaningful that they're five to six years behind other companies? No one wants to be caught out and turn into the Sears of the auto world. It's, and I think that's the, yeah, that's volume wise, it's not really meaningful. I would say. No. Um, because Zev's account for such a true Zev's account for such a small percentage of national sales until we hit 50% of maybe of new cars being zero emissions, then you could say, oh, maybe this manufacturer is, is caught out in the cold. I don't think anybody is, is in that position right now. Um, you know, the, the, the question of, of cost of compliance Manufacturers paid, generally speaking, in 2021 far more for carb or sorry for cafe compliance than they did for Zev compliance. So that is the more expensive bucket, um, which is explains the volume. Honestly, again, as as I said, be, behind uh, Lightning, also why we're getting EV pickup trucks from GM in such short order rather than other formats of vehicles that they could electrify. Um, there is a a, car, a cafe trading scheme where you can trade credits from this category to that uh, category of cafe, um, but it's not as advantageous to sell five bolts and then translate that into one Zev or sorry one cafe credit required for your your pickup truck line. Uh, it makes more sense to sell some Hummers, etc. So so here is the actual formula for anyone who's wondering about cafe penalties, and I believe this is current as of late 2021. It is something like $5.50 for each tenth of a mile per gallon that a manufacturer's cafe performance falls short of its compliance obligation. So it's penalty rate in dollars per one tenth of a mile per gallon per vehicle times the amount of the shortfall in tenths of a mile per gallon times the number mm -hmm. of vehicles in the manufacturer's fleet. So we can work that out separately in another, yeah. uh, in another venue, but that's exactly what it is for folks who are wondering. But the I'm not sure if you're looking at the most recent one. The fine went up quite a bit uh, this last fine? year. Did it go up to fourteen? It went up. It went up quite. It's about one hundred fifty dollars per mile per gallon. Okay, so the formula hasn't changed, but the penalty definitely has. Yes. Uh, okay. So it's uh, at any rate. So the bull. We won't bore our, our listeners yeah, here yeah. with that one, but essentially the essentially the penalty is approximately $150 per mile per gallon missed. But the biggest payers of it are the luxury car makers because nothing they make complies. So Porsche, uh, BMW, Mercedes, they're paying cafe credit, cafe fines on everything they make. And that's just fine because the, uh, the, the cost of the vehicles is high. So it doesn't really have a meaningful impact on the going nature of the business. So here's the thing. We were going to talk about dead end technologies, and that's going to be a great topic for a future discussion. I think we're just about at the end of the line here. So, Alex, I'll give you the last word definitively. Are, client, are compliance cars extinct or are cars currently on the market still compliance cars in the 90s sense? I will say not in the 90s sense, but I would consider them compliance cars of some sort. And I'm pretty sure we're going to see some more coming soon. Okay. And we will find out soon, hopefully from Toyota, because you guys, uh, I, I hate to say it, but you're lagging a little bit. Prove the naysayers wrong, Toyota. Do something incredible. Okay. That is what we've got this week, guys. So if you're hoping that the successor to the LFA will be a quad motor, um, 200 mile per hour <laughs> missile, 
you might be disappointed, but who knows? Maybe we'll get a Highlander that's actually got some guts this time, or a Grand Highlander for that matter. I'm Tim. He's Alex. Thanks for logging on. Alex, where can you find us online? All the usual places, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebooks, etc. Just uh, hunt for Alex Nottos and Auto Buyer's Guide. See all of you later.